Welcome to CSIS. Uh, I'm Howard Grinspect. I'm a moderator for this session on uh, electrification pathways to 2050. Uh, so I'm mostly at MIT these days, at the MIT Energy Initiative, where I'm a senior economist, but I'm also a non-resident senior associate here, as is my colleague Lawrence Jones. So. Uh, electrification is by no means a new phenomenon. Uh, you know, when I looked back at some data, uh, looked at the situation in, in the United States between 2050 and 2018, uh, total energy consumption in the end-use sectors, that's delivered, not primary energy, uh, but it includes primary energy where they use primary energy, uh, was roughly, grew by roughly 150% over the 68-year period. However, electricity use increased roughly 1,200% over that period. Put another way, electricity share in total delivered energy increased from 3% to 17%, uh, uh, sixfold. So if we do that again, we're at 102% and we're done. But uh, there are, of course, significant differences across the end use sectors. So the residential and commercial sectors, buildings, uh, saw the greatest shift with electricity providing 46% of their combined total energy use in 2018, up from only 6% in 2050. Uh, in industry, electricity now provides 12% of total energy use compared to only 3% in 2050. Sorry, in, uh, in 1950. I'm so focused on 2050 because of long-term uh, climate uh, and the path of electrification. Uh, so the increase in the share of electricity in total industrial energy use would be much greater if energy commodities used as chemical feedstocks were excluded from the calculation. So we use a lot of energy in industry to move molecules around, which is not the same as other uses of energy. Transportation is the only sector where electricity's share of total energy use was stagnant between 1950 and 2018. In both years, it was less than 1%, so pretty low bar. However, this seems set to change over the next decade and beyond, at least with the uh, growth in market penetration of electric vehicles, particularly in the light-duty vehicle uh, area. So similar electrification trends are evident across the globe in both developed and developing countries. Several countries already have significantly higher levels of electrification than the United States. One country that I looked at recently is Norway, and I think it's like uh, the electricity share of total delivered energy is kind of three times as high as the United States uh, value. So it isn't just the future, there's current demonstration of electrification. So until recently, electrification was mainly driven by three factors. The ability of electricity to outcompete other fuels in many existing uses, largely because it can be used very efficiently at the point of use. Second are shifts in economic activity, favoring products and activities that require electricity. So you, know, you can make steel with coal or you can make steel with electricity, but probably you have a hard time running your computer on uh, shoving pieces of coal into some of the openings in the, in the box. So finally, electricity is a clean fuel at the point of use and also increasingly at the site of generation. And that's been very important, you know, uh, Historically, because of, uh, you know, I guess what you might call traditional 
uh, pollution, uh, smog, uh, NOx, uh, particulates, and, and that's been very important. So given that electrification is already occurring naturally, you know, why are we having special discussions of it and uh, particularly focusing on electrification to 2050? And the answer is obviously the widely shared interest in mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, countries, uh, in some cases, uh, subnational governments, industries, and the public at large uh, see a need uh, for massive reduction in energy-related carbon dioxide emissions on an accelerated timescale uh, you know, to avoid uh, uh, a climate catastrophe. Of course, there's no one silver bullet to mitigating emissions, but the combination of a shift to no or very low emission electricity generation accompanied by accelerated electrification of energy uses that currently rely on other fuels seems extremely attractive, both in terms of cost and the scale of applicability. So again, it's not going to slay the dragon of uh, greenhouse gas emissions by itself, but it seems pretty attractive. In terms of clean generation, there are many options, including renewables, nuclear power, carbon capture and sequestration, and they're already demonstrated. Uh, electricity storage, the topic of my current work at MIT, has the potential to be an important tool in accommodating a generation mix that relies more heavily on generation using emission-free variable renewable energy sources such as wind and solar. And again, uh, that's become attractive because there have been rapid declines in the cost of wind and solar generation and also in the cost of storage itself. So uh, without being able to specify the exact mix of generation sources, it does seem possible to imagine uh, future systems for generation that are completely or almost completely decarbonized. And again, many end uses still seem amenable to further electrification beyond what we've done, particularly transportation, where, which has really been the main driver for development of uh, battery storage. And grid storage can use some of the same types of, of batteries, but the vehicle market is, is probably potentially much bigger. So, uh, I mean, that's it for the, uh, you know, the introduction. We have a long way to go on, uh, you know, if we take the benchmarks from the nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, uh, many countries are falling short of meeting those. Those objectives themselves fall short of meeting the, the two-degree, uh, you know, intent of the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, so countries are definitely looking for further actions to reduce energy-related carbon dioxide emissions. And certainly if they want to pursue the 1.5 degree goal, you know, it gets even, you know, more significant to accelerate what has been already a trend toward electrification. Uh, so we have three excellent speakers today, which is the good news. My filibuster is over. Uh, uh, we'll start with uh, uh, Arshad uh, Masood from the uh, Senior Vice President of the Electric Power Research Institute, well known to many of us. Uh, and he is going to focus on the United States. I guess you, uh, there was a handout that had the introduction, so I won't waste time with that, especially since we started a little late. And then we'll uh, move on to Dr. Yabe, uh, Yabe-san uh, from NIDO, and he will talk a little bit about the situation in, in Japan and batting cleanup. We have Dr. Uh, Lawrence Jones. So, so there's four doctors up here, uh, three of them who are real doctors, 
you know, of engineering and important science disciplines, you know, one who's a, an economist, eh, you know, but none of us can cure your cold. So with that, uh, let me turn to uh, Ashad Masood. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Um, it's an honor and pleasure to be here today. Um, it's a privilege to share some insights that we have from our research on what we are calling a pathway to decarbonization, a long-term, deep, but do it reliably and affordably. Uh, just a brief introduction on EPRI Electric Power Research Institute. Uh, we are a public interest energy and environment research organization. Our vision is uh, shaping the future of electricity, and the future we want is clean, affordable, and reliable. And increasingly, it's becoming shaping the future of energy. Uh, we work with more than 1,000 organizations across 30 countries with an annual R&D budget of around $420 million with 1,000 researchers. So our pathway is informed by our research. Uh, I've got only one slide, if I can put that up, and that's our Project 2X to 2050. And this is more of uh, not sharing our insights, but actually getting your feedback. And you can provide your feedback during discussion or connect us through LinkedIn. And if you want a copy of that infographics, it's more of infographics than a slide, would be more than happy to do that. And we have socks on Project 2X to 2050. So if any of you are uh, in the socks game, let us know, we'll send you a socks. So um, three things on Project 2X to 2050 that we would like you to take away. Some of them are numbers-based, a lot of economists here. So if you can remember just four numbers, six, five, four, one. That's the only four numbers I ask you to remember. You'll figure out what this Project 2X to 2050 pathway is. So if you're looking at the infographics, I want you to focus on the top half. And if you look at it on the left-hand side, you see some bar graphs. If you look at right-hand side, you see some more bar graphs. And in the middle, what we call some of the tools in the toolbox. So when we looked at, you know, we have research across all aspects of electricity. We call it make, move, and use. So electric vehicle, renewables, nuclear generation, all aspects of it. And we take our research results in one of the, I'd say one of the top three energy modeling tools that exist in the world to look at what is reliably and affordably plausible to accelerate the path towards the low carbon future. But before we do that, we look at the past and we look at what have we done, what has worked, and what has not worked. So if you look at six, that's six gigaton per year, which is the US energy-related carbon emission in 2005. Use 2005 because that's a reference year that many countries uses, and US also uses 2005 as the reference year. And if you look at where the emission is coming from, you can see 40% the largest emitter on the electric side. Then you have transportation, and then you have buildings and industry that use fossil fuel for heating. So that's where we were in 2005, and if you take your eyes now to the right-hand side bar graph, and if you look at how clean electric generation was in 2005, you can see approximately 0.6 metric ton per megawatt hour. That was the amount of CO2 that gets released when one megawatt hour of electricity is produced. So now, go back to today. And today, present day is 2020, which is two months away, three months away. The US emission most likely will come down to five gigaton per year. So we have taken one out in 15 years. That's six to five. And how have we taken out that one gigaton? If you go in the middle side, you will see two tools in the toolbox that we used. We used energy efficiency. 
U.S. uses U.S. electric utilities and, Can and North American electric utilities, we spend a $6 billion a year to educate our customers for rebates on all kind of energy efficiency programs. LED light bulbs, smart thermostats, these are all examples, better insulation. We used another tool in the toolbox, and that was the electric sector got cleaner. And if you now look at on the right-hand side bar graph, how cleaner did the electric sector in the U.S. become? It became 30% more cleaner. It was, if you look at 0.43 mega, uh, metric ton per uh, megawatt hour of electricity, that's the emission profile. How did we get the electric sector cleaner? Two-thirds of it came from coal to natural gas conversion. So natural gas was a driver to a low-carbon pathway, and one-third of it was new wind and new solar. So, but one of the most important metrics that's not in that graph is in this 15 years, this reduction by one gigaton, the average retail electric price in United States essentially remained constant inflation adjusted. So in 15 years, you reduced one gigaton, electric price essentially remained constant, inflation adjusted. Electric sector did most of the heavy lifting. 80% of the emission reduction came from the electric sector. Gas helped, wind helped, solar helped, but most importantly, having 20% of energy, electricity in the US, produced from carbon-free energy, nuclear, and we kept that. We had, unfortunately, one or two plants that were shut down, but most of that was still there. That allows us to get to five. And it's important because if you look at globally, this is a US picture, but it's globally relevant. If you look at globally in the last 15 years, 36 countries have reduced emission. US was one of them. And of all the total emission that was reduced, almost 40% of the reduction came from US. So without absence of federal policy, we're seeing clear, clear commitment from industries, from organizations like Amazon, customers of electric utilities. We're seeing commitment from state. So the path towards a low-carbon future has not abated in any way, shape, or form. So now we pause. So we looked at the past. What can we do in the next 30 years? And instead of looking at 30 years, which is a long term, let's look at what can we do in the next 10 years. And that's where our energy research modeling, we look at what is the cost of EVs going to be? What is the cost of batteries going to be? The insights that we use, where is wind going? Where is solar going? Where is nuclear energy going? And so that's when it's not a forecast. It's an outcome of energy system modeling. And we think it's plausible that reliably and affordably we can go to four gigaton in 2030. So we started with six. We got to five we can take another gigaton out. To do that reliably and affordably, we need to continue to do energy efficiency. But we need to define energy efficiency in a broad way. Energy efficiency needs to be fuel neutral. If I replace my gasoline car with electric vehicle, that is an energy efficiency product. We need to continue to clean our electric sector. Our model shows the electric sector could be 50% cleaner by 2050. And to do that, we got more coal to gas conversion. We'll have definitely more wind. We'll definitely more solar. But we got to make sure as a society, as a country, we need to keep the 20% of the energy that comes from carbon-free nuclear sources still remaining. Otherwise, the challenge will be almost insurmountable to get to even four gigaton. 
But just doing those two, those two tools in the toolbox, energy efficiency and clean electricity will not get us to four. We'll need to introduce a third tool in the toolbox, which is electrification. And in the next 10 years, where we see electrification's main focus, we see an opportunity. Our model shows that it is economically feasible by 2030, 10 years from now, 20% of the vehicle miles traveled in the U.S. would be electric. Four out of 10 new cars will be electric. So that's what our model is showing. Some models are showing even more aggressive and some a little bit less aggressive. But the key is in order to get there, yeah, the auto industry will do their part. The electric sector has to do their part as well. Our grid needs to be EV ready and renewable ready. And not only that, the charging infrastructure. And that's an opportunity for electric utility. Just like in 1930s, we took electric lines and went to rural areas, even though there was no economic incentive to do that. Uh, we need to figure out how to provide charging infrastructure to low-income community, to disadvantaged community. Because if EV reaches cost parity, you will save $1,000 a year on your energy bill if you switch from your gasoline car to electric. $1,000 may not mean a lot to us. It means a lot to an average family that has $45,000 annual income. But to do that, we need to have charging infrastructure that's available not just in high-income communities or on highways, but in public housing, in other disadvantaged communities. And electric sectors have a huge role to play to do that. If we can do those things, we think we can get to four gigaton, 30% reduction from 2005. At the end of the day, data talks. I mean, when you look at the numbers, numbers will speak for itself. If we are here in 2030, we can see how close we are to four. And then we took another pause and said, how did we get to one by 2050? Why did we pick one? No, no reason. The main reason we picked one was if you start with six and if you get to one, if you do the math, that's greater than 80%. And many low to no carbon phrase implies a greater than 80% reduction. If you take 1990 as your reference in US, in 1990, US emission was five gigaton. So five to one is also 80%. And that's where it becomes harder. And I want to introduce a concept as another takeaway besides the 6541 number is indirect electrification. So our model is showing to get to one, even if we do more energy efficiency, even if we do more cleaner trans electrification, cleaner generation of electricity, more renewables, more nuclear maybe, and even if we do more electrification of buildings, more electrification of cars, we're not going to get to one. We need a new tool in our toolbox, what we are calling is a low carbon resource. You can't electrify a ship. You can't electrify a plane. Industries, our cosmetics and plastics, all the large chemical industries, you can't electrify them. You need another energy carrier. Electricity is an energy carrier. Petroleum is an energy carrier. You need to create another energy carrier in a clean way. And that's where really the discussion on hydrogen comes in. The focus on hydrogen, we all thought about hydrogen economy. It's always 20 years away or 10 years away. And even today, it's 10 years away. I think we didn't put our focus right because we were th thinking about hydrogen economy to power a transportation, our car. We can electrify that car. We were thinking about small fuel cells. We have solar and other things to, do, you know, clean energy sources for powering our facilities. But where hydrogen makes sense, so in 2030, most likely we will have 300 gigawatt, large number, 
of generation in US that's coming from natural gas. How do you decarbonize that? Well, hydrogen is a carrier. There's significant research going on on hydrogen gas turbines. But not only that, we have more than trillion dollars of invested gas infrastructure. We are updating and upgrading our gas infrastructure every year. What if we can blend hydrogen with natural gas and use that gas infrastructure to heat homes for the industry? Then that infrastructure that the society has invested is actually an infrastructure for a low-carbon society as well. So renewable gas, whether it's hydrogen or biogas, just like natural gas will play a big role in the next 10 years for decarbonization, natural gas blended with renewable gas, hydrogen, biogas, will play another bridge from 2030 to 2040 to 2050. So that's where the society's focus needs to be. So focus one is, let's make sure we get things done that we can do now. Let's modernize the grid. Let's get the charging infrastructures ready. Let's continue to clean our electric generation. You can't say that we're going to clean the economy when our generation or the electric sector generation is not clean. But as we are focusing on these implementation, we need to make sure we should do an extensive R&D program, almost like a moonshot, almost like another Apollo mission. So in the next 10 years, we will do the R&D so that by 2030, the low carbon resources are ready as a tool in the toolbox to be used beyond 2030. So I'm going to end up with the positive news, which is um, we are engaging with our members, and we have partnered with Gas Technology Institute, GTI. They are a counterpart to Electric Power Research Institute, and we will be launching a five-year low-carbon resource initiative on biofuels, on carbon capture, on advanced nuclear, on hydrogen, and it will be a $100 million initiative funded by our members, but we fully expect a 10x leverage from Department of Energy, California Energy Commission, because together, if we put our brains and our power in, I think we will be continuing to reduce our emission and get to four gigaton by 2030. And we may have the, we will have the tools and technologies ready beyond 2030 to get to one. So that's a quick summary of Project 2X to 2050. I uh, appreciate uh, the privilege of having your time. And I look forward to your input and your feedback on how we can continue to refine the analysis that went into Project 2X to 2050. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, please uh, think of questions. We're going to take all the questions at the end. And now I'd like to turn to uh, Dr. Yabe. Yeah. Good morning. Okay. Yes. And I will, uh, I, I'm a research, uh, researcher of Technology Strategy Center of NEDO. And I'm uh, making the energy technology strategy for 2050s. I will explain about the electrification pathways to 2050s. And especially the uh, subtitle is Comprehensive Strategy for establishing a sustainable circular society, including much amount of electrification, and the evaluation method for the global greenhouse gas emission reduction technology. 
I will explain about this one. And uh, at first, I will uh, explain what, what is the comprehensive strategy for uh, establishing a sustainable circular society. And that is uh, very important for tw uh, thinking about 2050s. And this, uh, this one is the total uh, CO2 equivalent global greenhouse gas emissions uh, from uh, the world. And the uh, battle lines is a total emissions, and it is about uh, 50 gigaton. That is the uh, today's situation. And 2030s, it is increased. For Japanese case, about 30% is decreased, but uh, totally uh, increase of uh, population and also in increase of industrialization, it, it, it is increased for 2030. That is actual assumption of United Nations. But for 2050s, we should reduce largely to realize near net zero CO2 emission. It should about 40, uh, 40 gigaton or larger one is necessary to be reduced. That is the situation. For that purpose, um, many, many challenges should be necessary. And we think uh, what uh, estimate how we realize the 40 gigatons reduction. And NEDO make, makes uh, thinking about the 2050 society. That is, we think three points of view is very important. That is one is sustainable energy, and uh, the second one is circular economy. Circular economy is now uh, prevailing largely. For example, cash here uh, makes the uh, more uh, number of cars will be decreased. And they, therefore, that means that the manufacturing energy of cars would be decreased also. That is uh, one uh, result of circular economy. This kind of sharing uh, economy makes the reduction of uh, energy consumption. That is assumed. <laughs> also, bioeconomy is another pillar. Bioeconomy means uh, bioenergy, biofuels, and the biomass power generation is increased, and also uh, bioplastics will be utilized. And that is, uh, by, by utilizing the bio, uh, the totally uh, CO2 reduction is uh, thinking about the carbon neutral. That is the reduction of CO2. That is the three important viewpoints. And by making of these viewpoints, uh, we assumed the 2050s uh, society. And we assumed what, uh, what amount quantitatively is, uh, would be percent potential to be deduced. And by use of the, this one, uh, it is a total assumption of ours. And 40 gigaton can be uh, reduced in 2050s. And for that purpose, renewables, uh, yellow sign, is very important by use of photovoltaics, geothermal, wind, ocean energy like that. And also some power plant energy conservation, hydrogen electrification is one of the key factors for that. And also sharing economy makes the sharing plastic of uh, plastic ammonium and some uh, one, and CCU uh, making the carbon uh, capture and utilization for uh, cement and mineralization is one important factor. And the other uh, gray colored one is uh, EOR and CCS. Uh, it is a still large amount, but uh, we have uh, potential EOR CCS largely. 
And therefore, we assume this is one uh, figures we should uh, think for 2050s. And, and I will explain uh, about the electrification uh, in this uh, case about more. And you can see this is the uh, generation or next generation vehicles. And the left hand side is a trial electric vehicles. Now a hybrid electric vehicles appeared about 2000. And now electric vehicles appeared largely. And uh, Prius and Leaf, Leaf, uh, Tesla and BMW. There are many ones. And uh, this is a very hard competition. And also it is assumed in 2030s over uh, 2000, uh, sorry, sorry, 20 million and, uh, of new cars of electric vehicles would appear. That is uh, about 100 times larger than today's electric vehicles. That is, we are thinking new uh, industry and new field will be occurred. And uh, for that purpose, uh, the R&D of batteries is a very competitive uh, situation. And you can see the energy density at this increase rapidly. And it is started from uh, uh, PB acid and nickel cadmium and uh, lithium ions. That is uh, now obtained the Nobel Prize uh, this year. And, uh, and it, the density becomes larger and larger. But it, it is not uh, rapid. It's gradually larger. That, that is, therefore, R&D is very important. And uh, by 100 kilograms battery, uh, it is equivalent different driving range about this uh, uh, metrics. About 300 means 300 kilometers. And uh, we want to make the electric vehicles to run by one charges about 500 kilometers. That is nearly the equivalent to gasoline. For that purpose, we should uh, uh, research and develop more to the twice of today's lithium-ion batteries. Therefore, very hard competition is now making. That is the situation of the, this one. But uh, by making this kind of uh, electric vehicles, how much amount of CO2 can be reduced, we estimated about the half of internal combustion engine passenger vehicles will be converted to electric vehicles. Then uh, we uh, calculated about 0.8 gigaton is, uh, can be reduced by electrification of vehicles. 40 gigaton is our target. Therefore, uh, not so large, but it's very important. Uh, we think, uh, as I explained, uh, for obtained 40 gigatons reduction of CO2. We accumulate various kind of important technologies to accumulate. Everyone is only one gigaton, but if we accumulate 100 ones, then we, we, we make uh, 40 gigatons. Therefore, it's very important, but not so large one, uh, we assume. And But also, we think about more, uh, taking care of more, what is one point is, uh, compared to internal combustion engine's efficiency, now it's about 40%, but it is also uh, research and development is increased. It becomes about uh, 60%. Uh, the total CO2 emission factor is nearly the equivalent of uh, electric vehicles. That means uh, by electrification, we use the combustion, uh, uh, combustion uh, some uh, power generation but use some 
natural gas that will also include uh, emission of CO2. Therefore, the electric power is not so uh, carbon free. That means if we use the renewable energies, electricity only, that is uh, much better, but we use the usual power generation of, of natural gas like that, it is nearly the equivalent. Therefore, also it's very competition of internal combustion engines. Therefore, also we think uh, electric vehicles with less CO2 emission electric power is necessary. That is one point we should think. Another point is how much total amount of electricity is necessary additionally. It is, we estimated about 60%. You can see the 16% of total power electric consumption will be increased. Therefore, not, not twice for electric power. That means 16% is not so large, I'm thinking not so uh, influential for the total electric power systems. Th that is uh, uh, my uh, calculation. And also think of our airplanes to be electrified and how much amount of CO2 is, can be reduced. We estimated uh, half of domestic airlines becomes electric driven. We estimated uh, by 2030s, uh, electric power density of batteries increased uh, twice of today. Then uh, cost is also and uh, becomes good, but uh, in case of that, we cannot uh, realize the uh, international flight. It is too uh, much energy is necessary. Therefore, only domestic airlines in Japan. Is domestic is very short distance. In the United States, it's like international flights, very long. But it's, uh, we should compare more. But uh, for that case, reduction of CO2 is about 0.1 gigawatt. It's one order shorter than the uh, electric vehicles. But it is still important. The accumulation of this one is important, I'm thinking. And uh, another electrification important thing is heat, heat pump system. In United States, steel for heating and hot water supply, boiler is used. But uh, for 2050s, no boilers using fossil fuels is, will be uh, have permitted. Only electrification use of heat pumps is very important and, and is very uh, uh, key technologies. And by use of heat pumps, we can make uh, uh, heating and hot water supply. But uh, in the United States and in mainly of the Europe, it's very cold region like today. And uh, it is not e easy to make heat pumps today. New technology is necessary for uh, remove the frozen or, uh, uh, frost reduction, like that this technology is necessary. And uh, we estimate the, how much about uh, is obtained by use of heat pumps uh, in place of uh, boilers. Boilers is used in many factories, and also we calculated this one, and uh, this heat pump system and also uh, some uh, exhaust heat of fuel cell is very important in place of boilers. And we also think about that for electrification. And also for uh, the consumption in houses and for zero uh, emission houses or zero emission buildings, 
is very important. And it's due to electrification. And uh, how much about uh, amount of uh, CO2 can be reduced? We estimated it's 0.002 gigawatt, gigaton for in place of boilers uh, globally. That is also not, not large amount, but uh, this kind of electrification is very important, I'm thinking. And uh, also we think uh, we should utilize uh, variable renewable energies, such as photovoltaics and wind. And uh, in, in, in case of Japan, in Kyushu area, the western part of Japan, uh, photovoltaics in, is utilized uh, larger amount. That is larger than this capacity, certificate capacity is larger, about twice of demand of uh, spring and uh, falls. That, that means in May or in October, uh, much amount of uh, uh, for generated electricity cannot utilize. That, that means uh, cu some cut curtailment is occurred, actually. And uh, it is uh, called, uh, this is in the actual case of Kyushu area, and uh, this yellow one is we called uh, duck cup, and we think uh, solar energy makes nearly the half of that in this case. And also, actually, this duck, duck becomes uh, fat and fat more every year. And uh, about 80% is uh, solar energy is now uh, generated. That means curtailment is actually open. And we estimate for the case of Japan, it's about 10% or 15% of total photovoltaics to wind power generation cannot be utilized. And that is, uh, uh, we want to utilize that curtailmented uh, uh, electricity. And that, that is also a very important key, key technology we should research and develop. And uh, for that purpose, uh, we think uh, one idea and one trial is to use the electric furnace. If curtailmented uh, is occurred, this uh, unutilized electricity is used for electric furnace. It's uh, really nearly free for charge. Therefore, please use that one. And we think uh, by use of uh, electric furnace, attractive and flexible operation, utilizing surplus variable new energies. That is a good uh, idea, and we tried in Japan also. Uh, it's very successful. And uh, by use of this kind of electric furnace that is utilized in globally, and we also calculated the total CO2 reduction is 0.06 gigaton. It's also not a large one, but uh, also it is very important to utilize the uh, unused uh, variable renewable energies. That, is, that trial we should more. And otherwise, we want to make many uh, trials, such as utilizing this uh, uncurtailment electricity to make hydrogen, but uh, it's not economical so far, uh, because uh, some equipment is very expensive. This is a, a situation of that. This is the electrification uh, pathways, and now we are challenging, and the estimated uh, quantity we can uh, make the deduction of CO2. 
And uh, also, I think uh, evaluation method of various kinds of technologies, I explained, and all other technologies for greenhouse gas reduction technologies, how to evaluate is one important uh, uh, method we should think. And uh, NEDO is uh, very uh, proud of making the uh, photovoltaics development. We uh, continuously, 40 years, and to make the cost to, to be to one, 20, uh, 200. The, we continuously tried, and we succeeded to that one. But uh, economically, uh, commercially, we are not successful. China is uh, more strong for commercially. But uh, research and development is like this one. But it's very important. Yes, sorry. And uh, this is a result. And I want to say, this is a CO2 abatement cost. That is very important. And uh, by this, uh, making the research and development, this CO2 abatement cost can be reduced. And we think uh, for 2050s, uh, it becomes a large, much um, expensive technology we should use, uh, we should use for reduction of CO2. And for that purpose, we think uh, our targeted technology is how much uh, CO2 abatement cost is. And then, uh, if it is reasonable, let's try and uh, let's challenge. That, that is a very important uh, parameter we should discuss. And uh, as I conceptually, a reduction of CO2 by research and development, if cost is a promoting uh, increase of marginal CO2 abatement cost, then let's try. That, that is the one I want to say. And, and this is summary, is, but it's a little a time over, but uh, a little, and uh, yeah. we think about 40 gigawatt CO2 exhaust reduction we as assumed by um, some method we can realize the potential. And uh, by uh, CO2 uh, variable energy we want to utilize, but a curtailment is an important factor, and the electrification is very important. And uh, reduction cost, abatement cost, would be the very essential key factors for discussion of this one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very good discussion. So last but not least, we have uh, Lawrence Jones, I guess who will pick up the rest of the world outside uh. of the United States and Japan. So he should have more time, but we won't do that because okay. we want to get to the questions. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks again for, uh, to CSIS for having this, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, just briefly, Edison Electric Institute, for those who don't know who are we, uh, we're a trade association representing all investors, all utilities. Oh, Mike. is on. That's not close enough. Uh, all right. Normally, I don't have a mic problem, but okay, I'll, I'll try my best. Uh, can you hear me now? It may be the mic, not you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but basically, we represent all investor-owned utilities in the U.S. Um, and in addition to that, we have an international program that uh, basically have international electric companies, uh, about 70 at the moment, that have operations in about 90 countries. Uh, and so the perspectives we, we share on a range of issues are basically informed by the work we do with those companies across the globe uh, and work not just with the companies, but also with the key stakeholders, everything from public policy uh, folks, as well as folks involved in investment and technology providers and what have you. So I think, you know, it's, 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 it's a very interesting time in the industry. Uh, I said a couple of days ago that uh, um, 
if Thomas Edison was here, he would probably be surprised for two reasons. Uh, he would be surprised that uh, from a physical standpoint, not much has changed. Uh, the grid is still what it used to be from Edison's days. But I think you will be surprised to see that the uh, frameworks around electricity has changed. Uh, frameworks in terms of both public policy framework as well as uh, regulatory frameworks. So uh, we're in interesting times. Um, the, the theme for this day, pathways uh, to electrification, um, you know, I've, I've looked at pathways for the last two years now. And what I find interesting is that uh, uh, this whole global electrification trend is 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 basically is global in scope, but in terms of the content and the context is very very localized. Uh, and as I studied various pathways, uh, the EPRI pathways, the NEDO pathways, there's just so many pathways. Uh, there are some commonalities between the pathways that I think is important to keep in mind. Uh, in terms of technology, uh, when you look at all the different pathways as being provided by these different entities. Uh, there are some convergences around technology in terms of what technology should be part of the pathways. And they're not that different. Uh, for the most part, they're similar. Uh, whether you look at the work being done in, in, in the U.S. with EPRI, uh, if you go to New Zealand or Australia, you have CSIRO doing some work there. Uh, you go to Europe. Uh, I was in Singapore last week in ASEAN nations. So what I find interesting is that fundamentally there seems to be a convergence on the technological aspect of the pathways, and, and, and that's a very interesting thing. But, but what, is in, what is perhaps different, and I will talk about that when I get into specifically the EU uh, perspectives on, on pathways as well as I'll talk a little bit about Australia and then the ASEAN region. Uh, so what is, what is very different there is obviously the, 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 the starting point for all these pathways are uh, different. Uh, and so depending on the country or depending on the region, you have a set of uh, conditions that will di dictate how these different pathways uh, evolve. Uh, and, and so I think that's something to keep in mind. Uh, when I think of electrification in the context of these pathways, a couple of questions come to my mind. Uh, you know, first of all, um, we can all agree, uh, whether it's the IEA work, the World Bank, uh, a lot of major organizations have acknowledged that electrification is fundamentally key to achieving a lot of the goals being set uh, by different countries and different regions. So that's total agreement. But then the question is, how do we get there? Um, uh, how do we accelerate the process of electrifying the world? And I say the world because we should keep in mind that while we have a global, um, we have a global climate, but from the standpoint of the world, different parts of the world are different places in terms of their own economic development. Uh, and so the discussion around the global climate has to be kept in context in terms of how fast can certain countries move and what technology should certain countries adapt vis-a-vis -vis other countries. And so I call this the calculus of this transition in terms of uh, how do you balance it where perhaps Richer countries may have a different calculus or a different pathway as if you're a less developed country, and that's something to keep in mind. Uh, what must change uh, in terms of these pathways? One of the things I find fascinating is that the pathways are set, but in terms of what I call the inflection points that may occur on these pathways or bumps along the pathway, they might be different. And, and if you think of it from a technological standpoint, if you look back 20 years ago and you look at pathways, the projection when it came to solar energy was very, very different. Uh, the projection when it came to even gas, uh, natural gas in the U.S. was different. 
And so technological inflection points can make some of these pathways change in a way that we cannot predict. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we lay out these pathways and factor in the, the uncertainty around the inflection points and when they're going to occur. Uh, the other thing is, you know, as we design these pathways, we need to think about how do we actually finance the pathways. Uh, Arsha talked about the need for investment in R&D. Uh, that's something we need to keep in mind. Um, how do we get customers or citizens to buy into the pathways? Uh, one of the things I see talking to utilities around the world and policymakers is that we're setting pathways for the most part from a technological standpoint. But what is the pathway for getting a society to embrace electrification? And how do you design that pathway? Uh, because there's a disalignment, a misalignment we see in some parts of the world where there's a technological pathway but then there's a societal or political pathways that are completely different. And so you may lay out a very, very brilliant and very you know, explicit technological pathway, which is what most pathways are about these days. But then I ask the question, what is the political pathway or the economical pathway or even the, the societal pathway to get there? Because I'm rem reminded of the song by George Benson. I know who don't know George Benson, the, the jazz player. He, he, he did a song a couple of years ago Everything must change. I'm not going to sing this song, but I'm going to read. <laughs> I'm going to read two two uh, uh, parts from the lyrics that I find very fascinating. Uh, and so the, the lyrics go: So everything must change. Nothing stays the same. Everyone must change. Nothing stays the same. The young become the old. Mysteries do unfold, cause that's the way of time. Nothing and no one goes unchanged. And as we design pathways, what I find fascinating is that. Wherever I travel around the world talking to policymakers and, and, and others, utility companies, uh, electric companies, the technology pathways seem to be very, very clear for the most part. We understand it. We just heard two presentations from NATO and from EPRI. Uh, and then I've looked at other pathways and I find a lot of similarities. But then when I overlay the technological pathway and I overlay with the social, political, uh, uh, economic investment pathways, that's where I start to worry because I see a different uh, between those different pathways. And so how do you create homogeneity and commonality between one country or a region's technological pathway as well as the political and the social and societal pathways? And that's something we need to think about. The other thing about pathways and, and is, is, is how do we balance the short term and the long term? Right? A lot of the physical infrastructure that is necessary for electrification require long-time investment. Right? But we're now in the age where you have the digital transformation that has a different time scale in terms of how you make investments and how do you recover the investments. And then you have the infrastructure, the physical systems that require perhaps a longer time for recovering those investments. And so how do we harmonize the long-term and the short-term aspects of these pathways? Because right now, there seems to be across, across the globe an acceptance that digitalization is going to be key part of the whole electrification pathway. But when you marry those two together, you realize then that for investing in huge physical infrastructure, I would like to get large amounts of renewable energy from one part of the country to another part of the country. I need large transmission systems to be built. Those transmission systems, they're physical systems that require huge investments and also require a certain... Uh, acceleration of the policy framework to get them built. If I need physical infrastructure for natural gas infrastructure, 
Well, I also need to look at what the pathway to get those infrastructures built. So, so we need to take that into consideration as well. So, so if we look at Europe uh, and look at what have been driving the European pathway for the most part, uh, obviously, you know, targets have been really key to what has been happening in Europe. I always like to make the, make the, the, the point that Europe is not a monolithic. Yes, there may be policy coming from the EU, um, and I think I see a few folks here from the EU who should actually be giving this presentation and not me, but nonetheless. Um, but then at the country level, they differ. And they differ they're not just because of the geographic location, but because of the natural resources that exist in those countries. So in Europe, you have targets being set. Uh, there's a goal to have an overall renewable target of 32%. Well, if you're in Norway, you're pretty close to contributing almost everything to that particular target. Whereas if you're another country, uh, you know, if, you, say, if you're in Poland or if you're in France, or in France, you may have a different perspective because you might be pushing more nuclear, right? So, so the, 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 the local differences in those countries in terms of the natural resource creates a very interesting thing that we need to keep in mind. Uh, the other point with regards to that is that the European Commission, the incoming president, has uh, made it clear that she's going to set some very aggressive targets when it comes to uh, carbon em emission reduction going from 40% by 2030 to 50 to 55% by, by the year 2030. So what does that mean? you got these targets coming, and what does it all mean from electrification? So if you look at all the documents in the EU, most of it agree that electrification is going to be key. Now, uh, we're not getting, I don't want to get into the technology because they're all somewhat similar to what we've already heard, but just some of the drivers, they see why electrification is so critical in Europe uh, and the approach they're taking. Uh, First of all, they're taking a very strong sectorial coupling approach, meaning that they're going to make sure that electrification is not just from sort of providing electricity or transportation, but also industrial sector needs to be electrified. Uh, they're looking at aviation. They're looking at shipping. Uh, they're looking at harnessing this whole idea of e-mobility, which is, you know, the transportation electrification. Uh, the other aspect which is critical is cities, urbanization. Uh, how does that fit into the broader strategy for what they're going to do? So I think in terms of the EU, obviously, they have the targets they've set. Uh, they have the clean energy package, which is basically the foundation, the first step to dealing with some of the issues around the short-term market. If you look at that bill, which is about 10,000 pages, talks a lot about the, the market design in Europe, what's going to be happening with regards to flexibility, uh, distribution system operator. So a lot is about the short-term. But I think the long-term incentive, the sig signals that are necessary to really bring the long-term investment, there's still a lot of work to be done there in that perspective from Europe. The other thing that's, uh, if you look at the clean energy package, one of the other things that's fascinating is the role of consumer. So the EU has made a very concerted effort to make sure that consumers are part of this whole transition, consumers are part of the electrification story. And so enabling consumers uh, is, is an area that they're focusing on. And this ties back to what I started off by saying, the importance of having uh, pathways that not just reflect the technological aspect, but also the human aspect, the consumer aspect, as well as the, the political aspect. I think the last uh, point I'll make, uh, just shifting from Europe a bit and, and moving to Australia and ASEAN region, and, and that speaks to this issue of Electrification from a technological standpoint, we can all agree there's global convergence on where we're going, the types of technology we need, even in an area as CCS. Uh, I was in, like I said, I was in Singapore last week. 
uh, at the, the, age, the Singapore Energy Week. And there seemed to be convergence on the role of CCS, how it's going to happen. Obviously, there's still some issues around the investments that's necessary and who's going to pay for it. But there's no issue on the technology. What is interesting is when you start looking at the countries and spe specifically, if you look at Australia, there you see that already with regards to rooftop solar or PV, huge acceleration, huge uptake, almost 2 million households already have that. Now, if you have that amount of uptake in solar and you're setting a pathway in terms of getting the markets to work, you start asking yourself the question, how will that high penetration of solar impact the design of the electricity market with regards to investing in long-term base load generation? Who's going to want to make an investment if there's a, there's a potential inflection point that everyone is going to have their own rooftop? And what does it mean from an investment standpoint? So Australia is very interesting. Their pathways technologically, again, is very similar to, to what EPRI has talked about in NEDO. But the difference is there in terms of the, the regulatory and market design structure, which is fundamentally different. If you move to ASEAN countries... Right, and, and you look at, obviously, there are differences there. You have Singapore, which is sort of a really ahead in terms of how they're going. Singapore doesn't have a lot of natural resource. So their, their electrification strategy from the supply side is really hinged on using things like natural gas, which will require infrastructure to be built. Uh, they have a very uh, aggressive uh, uh, use of solar. Uh, that's the goal. But again, if you've been to Singapore, you understand that they're always you know, threatened by clouds. So uh, you can have all the solar there, but if you have these clouds coming all the time, it affects the overall amount you can get out of it in terms of the generation. But that's where they're going. Now, I bring up Singapore in the ASEAN region to contrast it with, say, the Philippines or Malaysia or Indonesia, countries that have still high penetration or high amounts of the population that don't have access to electricity. And they have, for, for the most part, if you take places like Indonesia, where they're going to still uh, look at using coal, for example, it raises a very interesting point from a global perspective in terms of the global trajectory. And, and, uh, and I want to end on that point because I think it's important. Uh, in terms of the global trajectory, when it comes to if we were to have a global pathway, the question that I would be asking is, okay, so how do we balance a pathway that makes the transition just and equitable. Because the question that came that I got in, in Singapore from some of the delegates from the ASEAN countries was, look, Lawrence, here's the situation. Yes, the world has a carbon budget that is, you know, being consumed. But we have 200 million people in the region that needs to be brought out of poverty. And something has to give. Remember, I started with George Benson, something has to change. Well, well, I need to industrialize my country if I am in the ASEAN region. So what do I need to do it? Can I industrialize my country if I only use, say, renewables? Or uh, do I need to use other base loads like, you know, uh, uh, nuclear or coal, right? And what they said to me was, we have one equation, we have one planet. And if we're going to balance it, something has to come down for something else to go up. And one said to me, it seems as though that everybody is saying that everybody should come down. But here's the problem. If you already industrialize and you don't have 200 million people who lack access to electricity, it's okay for you to say that everybody must come down. But if everyone comes down or everyone stays the same, I have 200 million people in my country who need access to electricity. 
And so where do we create the just and equitable and fair transition in terms of electrification so that some countries can, will have to accept and change their standard of living for the common good for the entire globe? Because the number that you showed, Ms. Dr. Yebi, regarding the total reduction in CO2, if that's the reduction, some countries are going to have to reduce more for others to increase to achieve the global electrification target. Because if we don't, we'll have this sort of a total divided world where those who already have industrialized will remain industrialized at the expense of those who want to industrialize but also want to help the climate. And so coming back to George Benson, I'll end with it. I'm not going to sing the song like I said, but I'll say <laughs> everything has to change. Everyone must change. And the pathways cannot just be technologically driven. They have to be based on society politics, and it has to be based on making sure that the pathways are just and fair from a global perspective. So I'll stop there. Thank you for that. Well, thanks to all the speakers. I thought they did a great job. Uh, so we're going to transition. Well, thanks to them again at the end. But we're going to transition into the uh, Q&A part, and there is time. Because they did such a great job, we do have about 20 minutes, and that's great. I, I want to just do one little bit of uh, you know, moderator privilege, I guess, and then we'll move right into the audience. When we get, I assume you have questions. If you don't, you can think of them while doing the moderator privilege. When we get to the audience, is there someone with a microphone? Yep, okay, that's good. So the other thing I'd ask you to do is please identify yourself and your organization uh, before you ask your question. Uh, again, I know a lot of you, but I think it's a courtesy to the others in the audience and to the uh, speakers. So, uh, you know, uh, this, this issue of, uh, of social acceptability came up. I think that's pretty important across countries and even within countries that have very diverse, you know, different regional interests. Uh, the issue of nuclear came up. I know nuclear is a big issue both in the U.S. Uh, and Japan potentially. Uh, that ties into both cost and social acceptability perhaps. So I'm curious, uh, you know, I want to have kind of questions that the, the other issue that came up is the role of uh, carbon capture and sequestration seemed to play a big role in uh, both, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Mansour's presentation and Dr. Yabe's presentation. I even have a pathway that came out a couple of days ago from Southern California Edison. And even there, you know, they're talking, uh, they're only talking about 2045, but they're talking uh, uh, of cutting from 2017 levels by about 75% California's emissions, but then dealing with some kind of sequestration for the, the remaining 25% because they're looking at a net zero. So let me let me put those out on, I'm trying to put things out on the table. And, and if we're talking about CCS, to what extent are we talking about CCS at the point source? Or to what extent something we hear a lot about in the United States these days, or in Washington, maybe I confuse Washington with the United States. We hear a lot about uh, direct air capture. So, uh, I just want to throw a few things out there based on what all three of you guys had to say, and maybe we can go down the down the aisle. Uh, let's talk about CCS, talk about social acceptability, talk a little bit about nuclear, both social acceptability and cost. I think the CCS part is, um, and we were involved in early to mid-2000, 2006, some of the major demonstration projects in the U.S., and then the interest abated because we found a new way to reduce emission, which was natural gas. Um, I think carbon capture and storage, uh, there was some focus that was misplaced, I think, by the world research community in the mid-2000. Uh, we were doing large-scale demonstrations. 
billion dollar demonstrations, essentially of the same technology. It's an amine-based technology. What we didn't do is put the focus on startup companies and early stage technologies, because there are other ways to capture carbon than just a main based. So one of the things we will do in our low carbon research initiative in the next five years is not focus on demonstration, is focus on how do you accelerate technologies so we can move from TRL technology readiness level from three to five to seven. So that's one. I think a nuclear, we just need to be, uh, I think we need to do a better job in explaining what carbon free energy means. I think we need to look at what land use means if you look at a 1,000 megawatt or a 1 gigawatt of nuclear plant versus a 1 gigawatt of wind versus a 1 gigawatt of solar, land use needs to be part of the equation. Uh, we need to look at the cost. Um, in some countries, they're building nuclear plants uh, at a pace that we haven't been able to do in the U.S. Um, but I think if you lose nuclear as an option, you have a much higher hurdle to get to the level that you want to get. And social acceptance of nuclear, social acceptance of carbon capture. Carbon capture, I think, acceptance is higher. Storage is where we'll have to work. And that's the reason why I think uh, we always need a bridge. So natural gas is a bridge till 2030. What's the next bridge? So one bridge is blending natural gas with hydrogen and other low carbon resources. But we have to look at other bridges so that maybe we don't store the carbon but we captured the carbon, use clean hydrogen, and create synthetic natural gas, methane. That may be another bridge from 2030 to 2040. That's really what our focus will be in the next five years when we launch the Low Carbon Resource Initiative, is what are those options that will have lower cost, that will leverage each country's infrastructure, like in U.S. natural gas, and that could be socially acceptable. And thank you. And uh, I think for CCS, and uh, it is uh, uh, socially accepted is very important. For example, Germany uh, diet don't like that one. But uh, I think uh, we think about CCS. Think of many oil plants. We insert CO two for oil recovery like that. EOR is also the same. Uh, figures and CCS is uh, uh, if we utilize a very solid uh, place and uh, that means a very rigid uh, soil is uh, in some countries. Uh, in Japan, there are many uh, earthquakes. Therefore, not good for storage. Uh, CO2 is uh, released. Some possibility. Therefore. Uh, but globally, there are very adequate places uh, to store the CO2. That means uh, globally, some good points we should utilize uh, uh, with many countries' uh, uh, collaboration. That, that kind is, uh, is acceptable, acceptable socially uh, based on the good discussions. That is about CCS. And, uh, and also for nuclear power uh, in Japan, uh, Fukushima accident is very uh, severe and very sad ones. And we recovered uh, one by one uh, by making the uh, safe uh, situation 
as much as possible. Then I recovered a little and little. And uh, they, but uh, for Japanese people, not so easy to accept uh, nuclear power. But uh, uh, recovered and that nuclear becomes uh, safe uh, uh, items. It becomes a little amount for CO2 reduction. That is uh, very important. So I think, again, I think the, the, the fact that, and as Ashra said, you know, different countries have different approaches when it comes to nuclear. Uh, some are deploying nuclear faster uh, than others. Others have decided not to, and which is, is fine. I mean, people have different approaches based on their local needs. Small nuclear reactor, we're seeing a lot of work there in that area. I think when it comes to the CCS thing, one, one thing I find fascinating is that, um, you know, as a global community, and, and this is just my own sort of a utopian mindset here. You're working. the only one here. So. <laughs> no, others are here too. But, but, uh, but, but, but seriously speaking, if, if you think about it, I'm fascinated that everyone agrees that at some point we still need to find a way to deal with the CCS issue, right? So why can't the global community come together and just solve it? Because if this is a serious crisis, you can't tell me that if you took all of EPRI's researchers, all of NATO's researchers, all of the researchers from Cicero in Australia, put them in a place, lock them up for one year, that they cannot solve the problem. Right? So, so for me, it, it seems as everyone seemed to think we know what the solution is, but for some reason, it's dragging its feet. And I think part of the problem is that this issue of acceptability that comes up a lot when it comes to these resources is because we as an energy industry, and I'm speaking here because I guess everyone here is, that's why you're here, we oftentimes like to see this problem in silos, right? So instead of looking at it from a system perspective, we talk of now is CCS. So we're going to just talk CCS. Well, there are interdependencies between CCS and other resources. There are interdependencies between nuclear and other things. But from a system perspective, when I talk to consumers around the world, who say they would love to have a lot of renewables, but they don't want to have a transmission line. Well, I need to have that conversation for them to understand why they need transmission. The same thing comes to nuclear. If you're in a place where you have had nuclear for a long time, and that's the only resource you have, as much as you may think it's bad and you may have other reasons for it, the reality is what else do you have? And the inconvenient conversation people don't like to have about these resources, you can't have it both ways. Something has to change. Something has to give. If you're in a country, if you're in sub-Saharan Africa and you have 600 million people who don't have access to electricity, why would someone tell you that you cannot use nuclear or you cannot use coal? I understand the rationale behind it. But from a human perspective, it really is almost an injustice to have 600 million people in the dark simply because someone else feels you shouldn't use the only resource you have at your disposal. So, so I think we need to be very clear about the conversation and, and stop tiptoeing around, you know, oh, CCS, yes or no. Well, CCS is needed because there are places in the world that will use coal for the next 100 years, whether we like it or not. They have no choice. So we need to then say, let's fix the CCS so that people in those countries can have it for their use. Instead, we're forcing the world to say, don't use coal. We all know it's bad. But what else do you do if you don't have anything else at your disposal? So I think we need to, be able to have these inconvenient conversations with citizens amongst ourselves and stop t 
sticking in either or, you know, renewables or, or, or wind or, you know, just, just let's be very honest. In the All right. Well, let's get the audience involved in this. What, what did you call it? An inconvenient conversation? In, inconvenient conversation. Okay. Let's go. Lots, well, of, lots of people. I'll, I'll let the, who's the mic caller? There are all kinds of people up here with their hands up. Maybe they'll raise their hands a little higher. So. And please identify yourself and your organization again. Uh, thank you. Uh, Stratus Tabularias uh, just retired from the International Finance Corporation. So uh, I have been working around the world. Uh, I, I should say that I'm an EPRI alumni too. So I worked in this country uh, in the 1980s, 90s. And if you allow me, I have a comment and, and a question to Dr. Mansour. Um, I think another important element in the pathways is the pace of change. And if we go too fast, or if things happen too fast, uh, you create stranded assets, somebody has to pay for it. And it's going to have to be either the consumer or the taxpayer, and sometimes the, the investor. Um, so uh, the pace is something very important that we need to keep in mind. Okay. My qu question to Dr. Mansour, I'm really happy to hear that uh, you have this gas initiative with the Gas Research Institute, DOE, and, and others. Um, the question I have is, it seems to me as we put more renewables into the system, the role of gas changes. It's not anymore providing base load capacity or intermittent uh, capacity. Um, it's the flexible fuel. If we go to the duck curve that uh, Dr. Yabe uh, presented, it needs to be very quick. Um, it needs to be efficient even when the, the low, uh, the, it operates at very low load. It needs to provide not just capacity, but also what we call in the technical lingo ancillary services, backup power, and so on and so forth. So is the initiative focusing on these other aspects related to regulation and power market design? Okay. Thank you. Let's take a couple uh, before we'll, but we'll save that one. And uh... Hello, uh, Dan Bosca, CEO of IntelliWings and uh, Vice President uh, for Frenetics, uh, Vice President for East Asia for Frenetics, a cybersecurity company. Mm -hmm. My question is, uh, how do you encourage uh, proactive use of cybersecurity that is going to be needed in this massive electrification. The electrification will require billions of encryption, uh, I'm sorry, IoT devices that hackers love to take over. Okay. Uh, my, my company, Fornetics, has invented and patented a encryption key management system that can do a billion encryption keys. But I was in Asia this summer, and uh, the, the feeling I got was that uh, in, Cybersecurity is an afterthought. In fact, in Japan, one company even told me that there's a government list of uh, 10 things you should do uh, for cybersecurity, and encryption was not on the list. So they said, well, why should we do a, a proactive, innovative stuff if it's okay. not on the list? How do you get over that? Okay. Thank you. Good. Uh, let's take one more over here. Give these folks a chance. <laughs> All right. So Emmanuel Wagner, Technology Transition Corporation. Um, we uh, manage clean energy associations. Um, I, just because I want to be brief, I did write down my question. Um, so in the United States, the state with the most um, deployment of electrification efforts is California, um, where I assume you're located um, with EPRI. Um, but we're seeing public power shutoffs right now, and we're seeing um, a lot of uh, wildfires caused by transmission lines. So um, 
it's estimated that bearing transmission lines in California will cost $15,000 per resident. And um, we also have already in 2019 764 gigawatt hours of curtailed renewable electricity. Um, so that's double of uh, what is 2017. My question is, in that case, shouldn't resiliency be a stronger focus of our electrification efforts, for example, using the gas system, using hydrogen, and doing that earlier than 2030 to 2050? Okay, let's uh, start with those. So we have the question about stranded assets, I guess, and the pace of change and the role of gas. Uh, why don't you, are you willing to tackle that, uh, Arshad? Yeah, just a quick, um, so our focus on the low carbon re research initiative with the GTI is uh, really how to we decarbonize gas turbines. So one way to decarbonize gas turbine is you use all the excess wind and solar and you produce hydrogen. Now we can store hydrogen just like we store natural gas and use hydrogen as the energy carrier to have a flexible operation. Um, I, I think the resiliency piece, we didn't talk about it. All we talked about was mitigation. How do we reduce CO2? The other side of the coin of mitigation is adaptation. Uh -huh. Our power system has been designed based on a weather that we expected 50 years ago. The design basis includes wind loading, undergrounding, wildfire, and all the other things. We need to look at the design basis of what would be the design basis as we rebuild the power system over the next 50 years for a new weather. So I think adaptation and mitigation both needs to be highlighted, even though this panel was focusing primarily on mitigation. Okay. Dr. Yabe? Yes. Uh, my question is about uh, the IoT device. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, the IoT device. IoT, and IoT devices and cybersecurity, cyber I believe. Yes. For, for Internet of, so demand response, I think. The idea of, of uh, when you think of this grid where maybe demand response plays a large role and uh, flexible, you know, signaling to nice end uses. Uh, how does, uh, how is the cybersecurity being considered as an important factor? Okay. Smart meters. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay. And uh, about the IoT devices, it's very important because uh, systems becomes uh, not only electricity, but also hydrogen, for example, fuel cell, is uh, related to electricity and heat demand. Therefore, uh, uh, energy system becomes more complicated, uh, including electricity, gas, and also heat. That makes the uh, optimization of system is very complicated but very challenging. For that purpose, for example, AI is also one uh, tools and also uh, in case of uh, uh, utilizing much amount of photovoltaics, for example, th that case uh, inertia of electricity is uh, locked. Then uh, artificial inertia makes by IoT devices. And this kind of uh, 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 IoT is very important to optimize and to make the uh, supply and demand uh, uh, management for that purpose. Uh, we are thinking about the si si uh, system uh, optimization and by use of, uh, for example, uh, uh, power devices and also uh, sensors that makes the sit uh, energy situation more correctly 
captured. That, that kind of uh, is also a very important uh, future challenge for field, I think. Okay. Well, I would just I would just add uh, regarding the issue of stranded asset. I think that comes to the point I made regarding long term thinking. I think fundamentally, if we're going to redesign the system, I should use the number fifty years. Well, fifty years for me spells stranded, right? Because you're going to be putting something in the ground for fifty years, and so I think the, the the thinking has to be around the regulatory and policy frameworks that will make assets unstranded from the standpoint of an investment uh, investment perspective. Regarding resilience, I think the issue of cybersecurity it's it's actually being addressed uh, quite a bit already by the in the electric industry uh, around the world. Uh, they're doing a lot now. You don't hear about it because it's supposed to be you know kept right for that reason. Uh, so there's a lot being done already. I think the, the point about adaptation and resilience that you raised uh, is something where I think the conversation also needs to be had in terms of, uh, you, you know, you're going to need to have the physical infrastructure built. And redesigning the system, the challenge we have from electricity is I cannot shut down this system and rebuild it. It has to be rebuilt as it's right. still on. And right. so we have this hybrid reality of how do you transition young becoming the old, the old becoming young, that's the challenge we're going right. to have, right? So it is like having a boat. You know, uh, you know, if you're a good sailor, you can sail the boat. If you're good with your hands, you can repair the boat. What's hard to do is repair the boat while you're sailing the boat. Yeah. And that's the challenge we face. And the other thing we face is with these changes, you know, in Sweden, when they change the side of the road they drive on, I guess they went from the English system to the American system. They literally did it overnight. You know, they decided, no, we're going to... We're going to go to the, you know, uh, the, 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 and they went out and they changed the signs. And one day it was one way, and the next day it was the other way. When you can't do that, it's really going to be a challenge. You know, if you have a lot of people, let's say, electrifying their heating, which can be very compelling and is happening already in the United States, but you still have some people on the natural gas distribution system, which is very expensive system. And the question is, who's going to bear the cost of keeping you know, the heat on for those people who haven't changed. And that's something that some of these scenarios, I'm not sure, kind of necessarily, look, you know, look at carefully. And there's sometimes an assumption in the electric industry that the, the, the people who shift will be able to, you know, turn off that gas service and sort of walk away. And then the remaining costs will fall on the people who are still on that residual system. But that, you know, raises all kinds of issues of stranded costs and equity and the like. So it is a very... The pace question is very important. Let's try to take two more at least, and then I think we'll have to end it, although there's a lot of interest. But so, Sorry. no, keep on going. Go to the back. <clears throat> I'm Jan Mayer's Resources for the Future. I heard no discussion of the cost of this change or the financial assistance that's going to be required or the regulations that are going to be required to make this happen even though I think it should happen. Okay, one more. You guys can fight for it. You can it. fight for <laughs> it. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's, Thank you. I guess specifically to Dr. Jones or anyone, I'm a student from Georgetown University, by the way. Um, and my question was, how do you decide, like, the emission standards for the individual countries and the in the global diplomatic environment? Because... Every country obviously serves their own interests, right, because about reducing emissions. So you said some countries should take the burden on more so that others could develop. Practically, how do you like, propose to implement that in the world, basically? Start so, we'll start at this end. so well, so on the issue of cost, I did I did say that how do we finance this 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 transformation or this transition, right? Now, 
there are no numbers because I don't have numbers right now. But you raise a valid, valid point that these pathways needs to be uh, uh, analyzed from a, from, a, from a numbers perspective in terms of what is it going to cost and who's going to pay. So I completely agree with you. I think also the regulatory frameworks that support these pathways have to be adapted and, and, and changed as well. So I completely agree with you. On the issue of how do you do it? Well, again, I, I, it's not a simple sort of a let's just get it done. I mean, we saw at the climate negotiation in, when these uh, NDCs were being defined, every country will come up with their own strategy. I think the point I was trying to make regarding something has to, there has to be a give and take here, is that if we're going to have buy-in in terms of a just transition and electrification for everybody, whether it's the UNSC for all or, or whatever it is, right, we just have to recognize the fact that Countries in the world are starting at a different point in terms of poverty levels, in terms of industrialization levels. And it's, I think it's unfair to, to tell someone in Africa or in Asia who has huge populations that don't have access to electricity that they should only stick to one solution because that solution is better maybe for another part of the world, right? So we need to be very fair and just in terms of how we talk about this. Okay, further comments? Just, um, I think regulation is pretty simple. I think uh, the pathway that we have is not a pathway, it's a playbook. Playbook means what we need to do in the next 10 years first. And the next 10 years, we're going to make sure we have sufficient charging infrastructure and disadvantaged community and public housing. And electric utility needs to lead that. We need to make sure that we have grid modernization across the United States. And the third thing is we need to make sure that energy efficiency is continuing to reduce the cost for customers, but energy efficiency is fuel neutral. So if you change an oil furnace in Northeast to gas furnace, that's energy efficiency. If you change an electric, uh, your gasoline car to an electric car, that's energy efficiency. We're spending $6 billion a year on energy efficiency. Imagine if we can take some of that funding and actually do energy efficiency across all fuel sources. Cost depends, 10 to one, margin on what options you keep. If you don't have options, okay, let's say gas network is not used in the U.S., tremendous cost to the society. Let's say we figure out how to produce hydrogen from excess renewables and store it in natural gas caverns. Totally different cost frame. But there won't be any free lunch. One of the positive thing is, what has been the cost to go from 6 to 5 gigaton in the last 15 years? The average energy price, inflation adjusted, has essentially remained constant. So as technologists, I think we're sometimes utopian. The technology will figure it out, but there will be cost. Right. And that, you know, was in law, interestingly enough, it was actually the decline in the price of natural gas had a big, you know, role in some sort of offsetting some of the higher cost of other things. So it's a very challenging question. Well, we could talk about this forever, but we can't. So please uh, join me in uh, thanking our excellent speakers.